Well, we come again today to continue in our study. The God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, Christ appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. That's when animal sacrifices were forever retired because the true sacrifice of Christ took place. There was no longer any need for a type or picture of Christ. For now at last we have Christ publicly making the perfect once for all offering for our sin unto God. It was a single, unique, all-sufficient sacrifice that Christ made for us and presented to God in the heavenly tabernacle. The writer next gives us another argument in favor of Christ's one-time sacrifice, and that is this. Sinful men are appointed to die only once, and after that they are judged. Therefore, being made a man by the incarnation, Christ could only die once. Not for his sin, for he had none. But for the sins of those whose place he took on the cross and in the judgment. When lost men die, they face the judgment and wrath for their sins. Therefore, Jesus died only once for our sins. But when he died, the judgment was cut off for us all. For Christ and for his beloved people, Christ's propitiatory death put an end to judgment for our sin. This is why the death of believers is no longer penal in nature, for it is not our entrance to judgment and wrath. Rather, our death is our entrance into everlasting life and glory beyond comprehension. The finality of Christ's death was declared by Jesus himself at Calvary. After the Gospels relate his humiliation and mocking and nakedness, and after Christ cried out in anguish at being forsaken by God, at the very end there was one more humiliation, foretold by David in Psalm 69 that must take place. And so Jesus cried out in thirst that the Scripture might be fulfilled when they offered him vinegar to drink at the very end. This is the last incident reported by David and the last incident reported by the Gospels describing Christ's death and tying the two texts together. Then Christ declared, It is finished. Aaron could never finish it for our sins. He could only continue those sacrifices on and on and on. But our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek finished off the wrath and judgment for his people's sins once and for all at the cross. No wonder we are greatly comforted by God's solemn oath to Christ, making him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But Hebrews continues on after all that, unto those who are waiting for him, Christ will appear the second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to us. Christ promised to return for his people under very different circumstances. It will not be a round two of sacrifices for sin. Aaron kept coming back around for the same sad thing, but not our Lord Jesus. The bitter irony is that the Jews thought Jesus should establish his kingdom. They didn't appreciate the desperate need for someone to save them from their sins. 
They didn't understand that they had no righteous standing at all in Christ's kingdom. But their sins would doom them to destruction there. God knew better than His poor sinful people what it was we chiefly needed. Before Christ's kingdom was established, we needed to be made fit to be ruled by Christ in love and not in fury. Let us beware also of minimizing Christ's priestly work for us now in the heavenly tabernacle. It is no mere spiritual idea, but rather it is a tangible physical work by Christ presenting His sacrifice and blood upon the mercy seat of God. The duty of the priest under the Old Testament was not done once the sacrifice was slain. Its blood still had to be presented before God in the tabernacle for the propitiation of the sins of the people. Thus, this work of Christ in the heavenly tabernacle is absolutely necessary. It is far more necessary for our peace and salvation than is His return to set up His kingdom. We must not begrudge Christ in the glory, being our high priest now for us, for He is representing us and doing us good there. We must leave it to Christ and the Father to determine the appropriate time when He will return to complete the salvation of our physical bodies when He raises us up in power and glory, no longer corrupt and weak and dishonorable, but like unto His glorious resurrection body. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, the writer begins contrasting the feebleness of the ceremonial law with the sacrifice of Christ. And much of this he has gone over before, but he begins to make a different powerful argument about these matters, which we have inferred previously. Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereof perfect. Now we have repeatedly described over the last 20 or 30 years this idea of comparisons between people and things and procedures of the Old Testament as pointing to the perfections and beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. David, for example, can be compared and contrasted with the Lord Jesus. Sometimes the comparison is that as good as David was, Christ is far better. Sometimes the contrast is as bad as David was, Christ is perfect and far better. So no comparison of the Lord Jesus and His work with anything is sufficient to fully exhaust the glory and majesty and goodness of what Christ does. And this is true of the Old Testament sacrifices versus the sacrifice of Jesus. They point to Him. They lay the groundwork for Him. But at the same time, they fall far short of Him. And they cannot accomplish that which He and His offering for sin have accomplished. There are numerous points on which the writer of Hebrews has already contrasted and compared the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. The promises weren't as good. The sacrifice wasn't as good. The priest wasn't as good. Etc., etc. 
So now here we see once again recapitulated the law, the ceremonial cleansings, the sacrifices under the Old Covenant. They're just a shadow of the good things that are to come. The shadow is always less distinct, less defined, and has many, if not most, of the details rubbed out, doesn't it? Compared to the thing which is shadowed. And so they could never make the sinner who presents the offerings at the tabernacle, they could never make those sinners perfect, could they? They're not powerful enough. They're not powerful like the realities that they portray. Just like a portrait is not the real person. It merely depicts the person. It may depict the person honestly better than they actually appear. We always like to get our photographs retouched, you know. Made to look better than we are. Or if we can get a photographer to stage them to come out looking better than we actually are, well, that's just great. And yet, photographs cannot depict, can they, the mercy of a person or the love of a person or the good deeds of a person just as often as a photograph doesn't depict the crimes of a person or the misanthropy of a person and so forth. So, he once again repeats that the law and the sacrifices couldn't make anybody perfect. But how does he prove that? He has another proof that he adduces next in verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. So this argument that if they we're able to perfect the person from their sins, and that would be the end of them, wouldn't it? They would have served their purpose. They would have ceased being offering if they could carry out what we all had wished that they would. They would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sin. Now, this doesn't mean that the worshipers wouldn't continue to sin. It doesn't mean the worshipers wouldn't know about sin or even know of some of their sins, although none of us knows of all of our sins, do we? It's not talking about that kind of consciousness of sin. What it's talking about is no sense of wrath or judgment left for their sin. That is, that there would be peace between them and God with regard to their sin. The sacrifice had taken care of that, wouldn't it? But it never did under the Old Covenant. The Old Testament animal offerings never did cleanse the conscience of sin. And it was not prospective in the sense that every time you sinned, you had to trot back up there with another sacrifice. And as far as the nation was concerned, every year at the Day of Atonement, sacrifices were made They didn't cover the sins that had yet to be committed, did they? And so they had to be repeated. The writer here is saying that the ideal sacrifice satisfies God once and for always and gives the poor sinner a freedom of conscience that now he is right with God and that he 
need not continue to offer sacrifices because the sacrifice has done what God required once and for all for the propitiation of our sins unto God. That judgment has been exhausted in the sacrifice and satisfied. The writer is pointing to the need for a global solution. I used to have a lawyer friend who was always talking about what we need is a global solution, by which he meant that it settled all the matters possible with regard to the dispute between the parties. That was always his aim, was to reach a global solution. It didn't just whittle off this problem and solve that, leaving other problems to be solved later, or never to be solved, and to come back and destroy his client, of course, which is what he was concerned about. The writer is pointing to the need for a global solution, not just one at a time, not like playing whack-a-mole where this sin pops up and we propitiate God for it, and then another sin pops up and we propitiate God for that, etc., etc. He's suggesting that a sacrifice ought to take away the sin as far as God is concerned, that the sins should all be forgiven, set behind God's back, never called up against His people again, that they might have peace and reconciliation with God that's not destroyed the next time they sin against God. A one-time satisfaction for all our sins is what the writer is suggesting we need so that we might not fear judgment for our sin anymore. Now you can see that this is completely alien to all of the systems of man for propitiating God. They never are so bold as to say that they have satisfied God once and for all for all the sin of God's people. No, because then there wouldn't be any point to their religion, would it? They wouldn't be able to keep people on the hook, on the string, and yank their chain and make them keep bringing sacrifices and keep paying the priests, and the priest wouldn't have them under their thumb anymore, would he? It certainly is incompatible with the Roman Catholic false theology and religion that we need to have the Mass celebrated, which is a propitiatory sacrifice, they say. Now, they're careful to say that it's not a re-sacrifice of Christ, that it's a representation of Christ's sacrifice, and yet they claim it is a sacrifice that propitiates God and restores righteousness to the participants of it, as if they had lost their righteousness every time they sinned. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 that's not the kind of sacrifice we need. We need a sacrifice that's a one-time offering for sin that takes away the wrath of God for His people for all time. And the Old Testament system manifestly fails to meet this high standard. Such is not found in the Old Covenant or the ceremonial law. Therefore, the writer writes, if the sacrifice could make us perfect before God, then wouldn't they cease? And the answer is yes. It's a rhetorical question. The sacrifices would cease. The Old Testament sacrifices never ceased. Ergo, under the ceremonial law, 
They didn't make us perfect before God. That's why they don't cease. Wouldn't there be no sin left to purge if the animal sacrifices worked and took away our sin completely as far as God was concerned? Why would God's people continue to bring sacrificial animals if they knew God was at peace with them and all their sins had been taken away and forgiven? Therefore, the writer points out, they didn't cease to be offered because the people who brought them had not been made perfect by their previous sacrifices. And then in verse 3 we say, but in these sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. A remembrance made every year. Speaking of the annual sacrifice for the whole nation, the sacrifice of atonement. And the question we might say is, when the sacrifices are repeated like that, when there's seen to be a need or actually given a need by God's command that He should be propitiated over and over and over again, who is it that remembers sins in this scenario by the repeated, continual, never-ending offering of animal sacrifices? Well, first of all, we remember, at least we better, or we should have. We're reminded of our continuing sins and of the demand by God for animal sacrifices and of His wrath against us for our sins, that we are not at peace with God. We better hustle down there with our sacrifice. And so we're reminded that the sacrifice doesn't work in that it doesn't take away our sin. It doesn't make us perfect before God. But God also remembers, doesn't He? He remembers our sin. That's not a recipe for peace, is it? God remembers our sins. The wrath is still there, and therefore it must be appeased by a sacrifice. But you remember that under the new covenant promise, God said He would not remember our sins against us anymore. Where is the fulfillment, where's the promise, and where is the execution of that new covenant promise which manifestly the old covenant did not fulfill or carry out? Then in verse 4, we read this, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Not possible. Why? Because it's not a sufficient sacrifice. If it were they would have long ago ceased. If it were possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, then they would have ceased because they would have been taken away and we would have no more conscience of wrath to come for our sin. And the reason that it's not possible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sin is that it's not a sufficient substitute. Think of it, the life of an animal in exchange for the life of a sinful man. Remember what God said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Remember what he told Adam, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And the dying started the moment they did, and it culminated many centuries later in those days. But nevertheless, the death was inevitable. It was the promised judgment. The promised judgment by God for sin. Well, how can just executing a poor little helpless beast how can that satisfy God's judgment? It doesn't. It does not satisfy the promised judgment of God. 
And that's why the blood of bulls and of goats could never take away sin. But then we come to continue. How can a man who has forfeited his life by sinning against God be redeemed by a thing of far lesser value, the life of a little lamb? And we're not. The fact is, and it's proven by the never-ending need of animal offerings. If the life of bulls and of goats could have rendered a one-time satisfaction for God's promised judgment against men for their sin, then they would have stopped being offered. But they weren't, because they're not. It's proven by that, by the fact that we have to continue, and by the fact, by the simple logic, of the relative values of these things, the impossibility that the wrath of God against man's life should be satisfied by the taking of an inferior creature's life. It turns out the only sufficient sacrifice is an offering of far greater value than the sinner's life even. The sinner's life even isn't enough to propitiate the wrath of God. The sinner keeps sinning even after he's put to death in rage against God's justice in hell as he is judged forever. An offering that puts an end to all inferior offerings so that our sins are finally and irrevocably forgiven by God and He is satisfied that justice is done and we are set free. That's what we have to have, isn't it? And it can't be ourselves because we're already a flawed and perfect creature. It can't be lesser beasts because they are not of any significant value compared to the life of a man. So now the writer is going to refer to the Old Testament Scripture to show the desire of God for a better final sacrifice and to describe by whom it came about. And this is where the text becomes quite glorious. In verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 10, we read this, Wherefore, when He, that is Christ, cometh into the world, He saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. In this summary of Christ's explanation, this is a repetition of Christ's explanation given beforehand in the Old Testament of how and why it would come about that He would come into this world to become an offering for the sin of His poor people. Christ's explanation was revealed to King David, the psalmist, and the king recorded it in that beautiful psalm, the 40th psalm that we've read so many times before. And this is a summary of Christ's explanation through the prophet David. Hebrews writer is showing that such a final sacrifice by Messiah was described by Christ beforehand and was desired by God to replace the types and shadows of the animal sacrifices that could not save. And this is remarkable, you see, because the argument that Hebrews is making that God designated His dear Son to be manifest in the flesh and to be made 
the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. It's not just something that he plucked out of thin air. It was foretold by the Spirit of Christ to King David many, many centuries before. And you can read that in Psalm 40 at verse 6, where it says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Here is the appearance in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus expressed beforehand by His Spirit through David the prophet that it was unsatisfactory, the sacrifices of the animals were unsatisfactory to God and that they had to be replaced by the work and service of Messiah who was to come. Now, there is a slight difference between the Hebrew text, Masoretic text, which I just read, and the Septuagint, which was the common scripture of the Jews and of Christians in the first century, which is a Greek translation by Hebrew scholars before Christ came of the Old Testament text into Greek, because Greek had become the common language throughout the world, really. There's a slight difference if you noticed Hebrews quotes the Septuagint of Psalm 40, which says that sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. And Psalm 40 says, sacrifices and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. So the dissatisfaction of the animal offerings is made clear in both texts. But the question is, why does one say, my ears hast thou opened? And the other text says, a body thou hast prepared for me. Hebrews writer is showing that such a final sacrifice is described by Christ beforehand, desired by God to replace the types and shadows. Christ articulated here God's dissatisfaction with animal sacrifices, that they would not do the job that was necessary for Christ to accomplish, and how He would provide a body in which Christ would offer up His life to save His people to satisfy God's righteous demands against His sinful people. So all those centuries beforehand, the incarnation of Christ was seen in Psalm 40. And the purpose of it, the reason for it was that God was not satisfied with the animal sacrifices. Hebrews told us why. Because they couldn't take away sin. He had to have the perfect body of the Lord Jesus to be made to take away sin. And so therefore, the reason for the incarnation and for the sacrifice of Christ is seen in the failure described in Psalm 40 to satisfy God's commandments and God's just requirements for the sin of His people. Now this phrase, Thou hast opened mine ear, versus the other rendition, A body thou hast prepared for me, is a comparison between a poetic and elliptical way of putting it in the Psalms versus the deep things of Christ in the heaven, in His human body, being God's servant. This idea that God has opened His ears 
is a reference to an Old Testament ritual regarding the making of a servant, or the legal process for making of a servant. And the body being prepared is the body of the servant, which will be given in service to the master. You know, the essence of service in olden times is the use and ministry of the servant's very body toward the master. Maybe you've heard in modern days that a person who's very rich and powerful and important has a body man. That's the person who shadows the master, who performs whatever menial tasks may be required by the master including some very personal ones which are done in private, sometimes bathing, sometimes assisting to get dressed, making sure that the food is provided and so forth. In English times, they called them manservants. The point is, is that the further you go back in history, the more identified service of a servant is with actually the rendering of that servant's body in service towards the master. Now, in this case, the Lord Jesus, His body is to be given to Him in service to God, His Father. And so, mine ear being opened is the way of putting it poetically that He was eager to hear of and carry out God's commands as a servant in His body. And if you look at Exodus 21, you will see this little ritual. If the servant, that is a person who has been indentured to a master, shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. That is, my term of service is up, but I'm going to stay and serve my master for any number of reasons which are listed there. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And this would be similar to piercing a hole in someone's ear and putting an ear ring in it. But this was the old Israelite custom set down by the law by which a man's body was made the servant of his master for all time. And this was the option and choice of the servant. The master had to let him go free if he wanted to go free. But he loved his master and he loved the things of the house of his master, including his servant's wife and children. And so he would stay with his master for all time and his very body would be rendered up in continual service to his master. And so this is a lifelong commitment to serve with his body, his God. That's what... Psalm 40 at verse 5 is talking about Christ committing His body, which of course would have to be prepared for Him because at that time He hadn't been incarnate yet. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. So this is all perspective from the point of view of Psalm 40, but it is the prophecy of what Christ revealed to David by His Spirit would be the case that because God was not satisfied with animal offerings and sacrifices, didn't take delight in them, therefore Messiah would render service to God in the body that would be prepared for Him. 
And in this case, his ultimate service is to give his life for the cause of his God. This is not rare in the history of this voluntary service, which is described in Jewish history and in the Jewish texts, that such a servant might well be an armor bearer, a bodyguard, and might be called upon to actually lay down his life for his master. And Christ is going to be obedient to the purposes for which he's been given a body and has voluntarily committed himself to being the servant of the Lord. Christ himself ties God's dissatisfaction with the animal sacrifices because they could not save with his sending the second person as his answer in the humanity of Christ by the incarnation. The God-man provided with a body by the Father and becoming himself God's sacrifice for sin in the body to take away the ineffectual pictorial sacrifices of animals and to finish the job of purchasing final forgiveness for the sins of his people. Now this idea of God himself providing the body of the sacrifice is etched throughout the history of the people of Israel. It finds probably its first expression in Abraham's being told to sacrifice his son Isaac. And when Isaac asks him, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham tells him, God will provide himself a lamb for a sacrifice. He says this prophetically, probably not knowingly, but it is prophetic of the providing of the Son of God incarnate in humanity, a body by which he could serve the purposes of God his Father by being a sacrifice because animal sacrifices did not satisfy or please God and could never take away our sin. This obedience of Christ as a servant in his very body is set forth in Psalm 40, which we just read. And it's often repeated in Isaiah 53. It's known as the suffering, obedient servant, who is the servant to God unto death as the substitute for the sin of his people that is laid upon him. We know these texts well. And it's described by Jesus himself For the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. We read this text just this morning. And it's described by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 where he wrote, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Do you see the echo there of Psalm 40? My ears were opened by you. A body hast thou prepared for me. Took upon himself the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross, obedient to the Father's will because He is the incarnate servant of the Father 
who made him a body in which he could serve God as a servant and offer up that sacrifice which could finally take away our sin. Now notice that it was the form of a servant Paul describes the Lord Jesus as coming in. And think about how astounding that is that the Creator and Lord Jesus should become a servant to His God at the Incarnation. A servant who's obedient unto death. The giver of all life, the Lord Jesus as Creator, became subject to death, you see. Of course, He laid down His life. No man took it from Him. But nevertheless, think of the humiliation, the condescension of Christ as Lord of all that He should become a servant and that He should do so that His body might be laid down as an offering because God was no longer satisfied with the animal sacrifices which could never take away sin. Now notice well, the human body of Christ is exhausted in the ultimate service of a servant. He gave His life in service to the Master's project, you see, the saving of poor sinners and the displacement of the ways that couldn't work in the Old Testament animal sacrificial system. And the result of this, of course, is that He's raised from the dead, His body being raised an everlasting, incorruptible, glorious body. And He's highly exalted and given a name Paul says, the whole world bows in worship and obedience to the servant who died in obedience to his Father's will. Because he was obedient, God has highly exalted him. And so we see that there is very good reason that in Psalm 40, Christ is likened to a servant to God, one who's had his ears bored through or opened And He's given a body by which to carry out God's purpose of salvation by the obedient death of Christ in the place of His people. All expressed in the context of God's not being satisfied by animal sacrifice because they could not save His poor, sinful people. Now then, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, In the volume of the book it is written to me, I delight to do thy will. This is a reference in Psalm 40 by Christ through the Spirit to David that all of this is laid out in God's Word in the Old Testament that He would come and delight to do the will of His Father. And hopefully we can talk about that next time. But all of this work of Christ done in His body is part of what it means for God to swear his own oath to Christ to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What a comfort to us that so high and exalted a one as God the Son should become a servant in His human body unto death to our God and for our crimes because animal sacrifices could not take away the sins of His loved ones. But God delights not in the sacrifices of animals, but in His dear Son. He delighted in His sacrifice. was pleasing to Him. He spared Him not, but delivered Him up for us all, Paul tells us in Romans 8. You know, as servants, 
we're almost always resentful and disgruntled, aren't we? <laughs> we always think that this is too low for us. We should be getting paid more. Uh, we're better than this. Everyone bridles to some degree at being a servant, don't we? But of course, Jesus warned us about this, didn't He? In the very same place where He declared in the Gospel of Mark, we read it this morning, Mark's Gospel, the 10th chapter. We read it. He told His disciples he would, he would soon be sent to the cross and put to death. And they didn't like that. Then they commenced to squabble about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom who was going to be in charge, how they could get a leg up on all their fellow apostles. James and John did this. And they got their mother involved in it too. And the Lord Jesus gently rebuked them and said that it wasn't His to make that assignment. It was for those for whom the place had been prepared. And then He says at verse 42, Ye know that they who are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority on them, but so shall it not be among you. Whosoever would be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever of you would be the chiefest shall be servant of all. The Lord Jesus is describing the importance of obedient and cheerful servitude by His people towards their fellow believers. And he's using his own service, which is of the most extreme type imaginable, the giving of one's life for the saving of his people. He says this, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Here is the fulfillment of that prophecy which he gave David way back in Psalm 40, that God was not satisfied with animal offerings, but that Christ would be the servant for whom a body was prepared, that he might satisfy God where the animal sacrifices never could. Christ teaches us how we ought to serve in meekness, humility, and love and obedience, for He has served God and His people in His body unto dying as our ransom. And it reminds us of the words of that hymn that we like to sing. He saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. For me He bore the shameful cross and carried all my grief. The Lord Jesus is the friend of us. He is the Lord of us. He is the King of us. But He was also the servant of us and of His Father when He laid down His life for His people and solved the dilemma of the sacrifices that never saved and that had to be repeated and that God was not well pleased with. But around this table, we celebrate the sacrifice that God is well pleased with. And you notice that the sacrifice is remembered by us every Lord's Day, but it's not repeated. There's no need to repeat it. We're not here to call to mind our sins and our bad conscience before God and to perform this ritual 
in the vain hope of appeasing God and of taking away our sin. No, we're here to celebrate the fact that the offering Jesus made one time for all took away our sin. Our sins have been forgiven in Christ. The new covenant has been executed by His blood. And that's what He said when He offered up the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for the bread that pictures the body that was broken for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice that in Your Son was found the obedience to be made in the likeness of man, take on a body that You had prepared for Him, that He would be Your servant unto the end in His body. He would delight to do Your will in this matter. And that He would lay down His life, making the ultimate sacrifice of a servant for the goals and purposes of His Master. And yet they were His goals and His purposes. For you were all joined together in agreement as to how this must be and what must be done and how you would bring redemption to your people by the death of your dear Son. We thank you that you are satisfied with His offering even though the animal sacrifices that pointed to it could never be satisfactory, for they could not take away sin. And we thank You for this bread that He left us to remind us of the offering that He made. Help us to lay hold on Christ's body and blood by faith. Not the pictures, but the reality they point to. And to know that they're the only satisfactory sacrifice and they never need to be repeated because they have forever perfected Your people whom You love. Thank You for this bread that pictures it all for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it, and He broke it, and He said, Take and eat. This is My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 37 in the black book. Behold the Lamb with glory crowned. To Him all power is given. No place too high for Him is found. No place too high in heaven. Though high yet He accepts the praise His people offer here, the faintest, feeblest lay they raise will reach the Savior's ear. To Him whom men despise and slight, to Him all glory be given. The crown is His and His by right, the highest place in heaven. Number 37.